Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical core research career paths. My name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, computer science, PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And I'm now building Sky Therapy at X with Shad. My name is Shad, and I'm a physician and Harvard MBA and a co-founder of a digital therapeutic startup called Sky Therapeutics. I'm very excited for today's episode with our guest, Dr. Alice Jacobs. Alice is a physician and entrepreneur. She leads the Convergence Group, which works on improving access to and delivery of healthcare through AI-led digital acceleration. She founded her first company, Intelligent MTX, after losing a patient from a staph infection. And she has worked with leading venture funds, including Third Rock Ventures, GE Healthcare, and Greybird Ventures. She has also spent two years as an entrepreneur in residence at Caltech, guiding efforts to build the next generation of deep technology solutions. Alice holds a BA in art history and a BS of biological sciences from Stanford and an MD from Harvard Medical School. Awesome. You know, Shad and I have been really looking forward to the conversation. Really excited. So Alice, to start us off, can you share a little bit about your childhood, your decision to pursue a career in medicine, and your eventual decision to kind of venture off the beaten path? So over to you. Sure, absolutely. And, and thanks again for having me on this show. Both of you are very inspiring already. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what's up ahead for you both. So for me, um, I had a moment when I was four years old. Uh, my mother was quite ill um, and they weren't sure if she was going to survive. And uh, I went into the room to see how she was doing. And you could hear her breath sounds from across the room. And I just had this feeling that if I left the room, she wasn't going to make it. And so I remember I, I took, I had a little rocking chair and I put it next to her and I, I held her hand and I looked into her eyes and I said, mommy, you're going to be okay. And in that moment, she knew she was going to be okay. And she told me actually years later that that was the moment where she ended up having enough strength to fight back um, from what was a very Hi, severe Alice. pneumonia. Hi, Alice. Thank you for joining um, the show. Really and it was the moment that I became a doctor in the sense of realizing that just being in someone's presence and helping them become less afraid of what was happening to them was an essential element. And in some ways, it was a strange moment because I, I lost my childhood in that moment. I, I view the world very differently. And in some ways, it was a tremendous blessing because I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And so no matter what anybody said or did or didn't do, I knew that. Uh, and I had someone who tried to tell me I wasn't good at science, and I told them they were out of their minds and, you know, all, all these things. And uh, it, it just made the path very straightforward. Um, I, I knew by sixth grade I wanted to go to Harvard Medical School. It was just in me. It was something that I needed to do with my life, uh, as I knew I wanted to have it, an impact on human health. Now, on the one hand, my path to getting to medical school was pretty straightforward. Uh, I went to Stanford undergrad and did a couple of degrees there. I did research in developmental neurobiology. I wanted to study the brain. I viewed it as really the, the untapped frontier. Um, I had picked out a lab. I was going to do an MD-PhD 
at Harvard, and I had a whole plan for my life of what I was going to do. I was going to do both clinical medicine and research. Uh, and then I got to medical school and recognized that care as we delivered in this country has so many pain points and so many points of friction um, that I started to think through every step of the way that there were things that we could be doing differently. There are things we could be doing better. Um, and sometimes people wanted to hear about it and sometimes they didn't. <laughs> In fact, uh, I, I found myself occasionally getting into trouble because uh, sometimes when the, in the course of caring for patients, people don't want to hear when you could be doing something differently. That certainly that's not part of standard care. So I went along my way for a few years that way. And then in my third year, I had a, a moment that really struck me. And it was one of the next defining moments of my life which is I had a patient who came in for a routine surgery, um, relatively healthy, had some pre-existing conditions, but we were working up him up to send him home and he spiked a fever and we threw a bunch of drugs at him and he crashed and um, I ended up being in the room having to tell his wife and his parents that we'd done the best we could and I didn't feel that we had. Uh, I had come from this very strong technology background at Stanford and uh, I was really surprised to see that some of the techniques we used in the research lab weren't being used in clinical medicine. And so I made it my mission to make that possible. And so I just dove <laughs> headfirst in uh, starting my first company in my surgery rotation uh, <laughs> in my third year of medical school. Um, and I, it was so interesting because I spoke at my, uh, my medical school reunion very recently, and I realized that some of the people in the room I had not seen until since that moment. I talked about going off the path. I, I got off the path for a very long time. Uh, and it was wonderful to come back onto the path and connect with everyone, but uh, it has been quite a journey. Thank you, Alice, for sharing that and sharing kind of your personal stories. That's so impactful. And I think from the many conversations that we have, there is a common thread where many individuals go into medicine inspired by these kind of either personal stories or by these ideals of wanting to help individuals um, navigate through kind of the most difficult crises of their life. And many of the physicians that we spoke with realize, whether it's during medical school or during residency, that care delivery is so different from that ideal that they've imagined when starting and when pursuing a medical career. And so that, you know, propels them into action and into going into a variety of different career paths that are not necessarily direct clinical care because they want to improve that process of care delivery into a version that's kind of more similar to what they've imagined or anticipated or want to see. Thank you for sharing that. That is so impactful. Jumping a few steps ahead, you know, you're currently at the helm of the Convergence Group. You know, you're focused on enhancing healthcare through AI-led digital acceleration and through integration of digital technologies. And so kind of after you started your company, kind of can you tell us a little bit more why you've decided to start at the Convergence Group, how that idea came about, and if you can tell us also about kind of the group's work and what do you guys do there? So over to you. Absolutely. So no path to success is ever linear. And I think 
you have to enjoy the journey and make the most of it. And I think no matter how much you can prepare yourself for what's up ahead, um, you just don't know until you get there. And my, my whole take is you, you have to make the most of every experience that you have the privilege to have in your life. And we're all very privileged because we've gotten to do such incredible things, have such an incredible education. For me, having gone very deep in, in a business um, that was difficult because diagnostics, uh, when we started, was, was a difficult space. Med tech was a difficult space to operate in when we start, first started. Uh, and, and there's a lot to be said about that. But I decided I wanted a much broader view of healthcare. And so I went and I embedded myself in a couple of venture capital firms, spent some time with Third Rock Ventures and GE Healthcare, helped launch businesses from there, and learned a bit more about the discipline of company formation, um, which was invaluable. And then I migrated home. I'm a Los Angelino uh, on my mother's side, third generation. And so I, I thought took a risk, which I was worried was a bit of career suicide, um, to move to L.A. as a med tech biotech person who does that. Uh, it was incredible. Um, I had lunch one day with uh, one of my mentors, David Baltimore, and he said, listen, you should spend some time here at Caltech. There's some incredible things going here. And there's no one with your background. There's no doctor on campus. And so I became the first entrepreneur in residence as a physician um, on campus, uh, which was remarkable because I got to spend time with Nobel laureates and National Academy members uh, in bioengineering and chemical engineering, data science, computer science. So it was just a spectacular way of getting a sense of what's possible with an outside looking in perspective. Um, and from that, the interesting thing about Convergence Group is unlike other businesses where I've spent a lot of time thinking about a mission and a vision and a plan, and Convergence Group was literally a convergence of events where having spent time at Caltech, I started getting asked to go and look at opportunities at the intersection of health and innovation in AI. It started off, I actually was on, on my way to Tokyo and I had to form an LLC. And so I formed it on my way to the airport. Uh, but the Convergence Group has been an incredible experience because it started off with helping uh, advise uh, countries and companies uh, on their health and AI and, and uh, technology strategies. I've worked with lawmakers here in the U.S., worked with payers, providers, retailers, um, and at this point have literally been, at big tech, have been inside the walls of every element of healthcare, of all aspects of it, uh, and have a much better sense now of what's possible and what isn't possible inside of large companies, which is interesting, having spent my first part of my career really as an entrepreneur. We're very focused on taking points of friction out of care delivery. And in 2023, the great challenge, aside from staffing shortages for providers, is truly around revenue cycle and financial performance for providers. So we're very focused right now on that uh, and looking at solutions that can help accelerate uh, collections for providers. We're also standing in between providers and payers, which is quite a moment because they really need each other at this moment and uh, allowing them to have more of a conversation, which of course gets muddled because they're interfacing between electronic health record. Uh, so that's been an incredible journey and uh, I absolutely love the group. Um, 
and we've gotten to do some really interesting things. I mean, the, the, the bulk of the group was formed around an engagement we did with one of the, with the nation's largest retailer that was uh, building their provider platform from the ground up. So we actually airdropped in and helped them develop their technology roadmap and served as their product team as they actually went live with that, which uh, was how we all came together. That's very cool, Alice. Thank you for sharing. So I'm going to hand it over to Shad now for questions from his side. Over to you, Shad. Thank you, Alex. And, and thank you, Alice. A really inspiring story. I just wanted to reflect on a couple of things that you mentioned. You know, you said that no path is ever linear. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. You know, a lot of people's paths, as they say, are immersion, but not deliberate. It's a Clay Christensen quote. And Dan Gebremedine, who's a partner at Flare Capital and who was our first guest on Physicians of the Beaten Path, actually highlighted this quote as well. And the idea is that you don't have to have every single note of your life planned out in great detail, but you should be doing something at every single fork in the road that you really enjoy doing and that you're interested in. And then you get good at it. And as opportunities start coming your way, before you know it, you sort of become an expert at something unique. Another person, Michael Sherman, who was the chief medical officer at Point32, talked about becoming, you know, in your own smaller and smaller circle of expertise where, you know, opportunities start to find you because your entire life you've done stuff that, that you're interested in. And, and because of that, you've gotten really, really good at it. One of my friends, Stephen Nyer, who's actually an immunologist and a biotech VC up in Boston, always says that he went from asking for advice to being asked for advice. And it happened somewhat abruptly and without much planning. And I just thought that was a really interesting observation from his side. So I just wanted to shift gears now a little bit, Alice, and talk about your first experience as an entrepreneur. While you were a student at Harvard Medical School, you founded you know, Intelligent MDX and as you said, it was during your surgery rotation. And first of all, that's amazing. During my surgery rotation, I think I was either working or sleeping or you know something along those lines, but it's a complete blur. And how you managed to start a company during probably the most stressful month of anyone's life is sort of beyond me, but that's amazing. But being an entrepreneur, you know, as you know better than anybody, can be you know very volatile and often requires deep domain expertise, management ability, as well as confidence and, and a good network. And an interesting statistic that I heard when I was at HBS with Alex was that only 10% of HBS grads create their own startups right out of business school. But the vast majority, I think it was upwards of 70, 80% try their hand at entrepreneurship at some point in their career, usually much further down. Do you think there's a quote unquote good or perfect or optimal time to become an entrepreneur? And are there certain building blocks that are needed? If so, you know, what are they? And and how were you able to generate those building blocks so early in your career without formal training or experience in the business world? Well, to be fair, in, in, during my surgery rotation, we filed the patents um, and I then I ended up trying to do too much and re-injured my spine actually and while I was recovering I really did the bulk of the work but um, is there a right time to start a company I, I think it's really interesting because there's, there's a couple parts to this um, in a perfect world and also it, it depends also a bit on the sector like if you are starting a biotech company right if you're doing drug development there are elements to that that are important to learn and are worth learning 
before you take venture capital money and start something yourself. And so you look at the model of like a third rock ventures where you can come in and you learn as you go. And as you, as you grow, you get increasing responsibility. Um, there is something to be said for that. And uh, because there is a bit of pattern matching to it, um, that's important. Uh, I think in, in med tech or in health tech, maybe it's a little bit less, uh, but Personally, it would have been wonderful to have had at least one experience working for an incredible entrepreneur to learn with them. Uh, however, the other part of this, though, is if you have an idea and it's an important idea, it's probably a bit time sensitive. I know one of the conversations that's gone on in a number of your podcasts has been around, um, you know, do you stay the course, right? Or do you follow the shiny object? And I think the challenge is if you have an idea that has the potential to be truly impactful, you're probably not the only person who does. And so if you wait five or 10 years, you'll have missed that opportunity. Now, there'll be many other opportunities. So it's a bit of a blend because you you have to decide, um, you know, how important is this to you? And and I wouldn't wait too long. Um, There is something to be said about the enthusiasm um, that you have in, in when you're first getting started and uh, where you're just willing to give it a try. And I think there's something really special about that. So I, I wouldn't wait too long. I, I, one thing I have really learned in business that we as clinicians are not taught um, is perfection in business is the enemy of the good. So we've all tried to get you know, straight A's or always get the best scores on everything. But when you're developing a product, um, a B is great because if you wait, if you, if you take more time than that, you've missed the opportunity altogether. Someone else is already out there. So I think it's important to have that healthy mix of pressure testing things, having a little bit of experience, but certainly not waiting too long. What a fantastic answer. Thank you so much, Alice. And, and just to reflect on a couple of things you said, we've actually had on Dr. David Kaufman, who, who's a partner at Third Rock Ventures, and, and he sort of explained for our audience the whole model of venture creation, which is very illuminating. And, and they don't even fashion themselves, as I understand, as investors, but rather sort of company creators as deep, deep scientists, which is a very unique model. I know a couple of other folks like Flagship and Atlas do it, but I know Third Rock does it incredibly, incredibly well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what a fantastic experience and something with like biotech where it's some level of domain expertise is really needed and appreciated. I think going to a venture creation shop or going to work at a biotech or a pharma company and learning the ins and outs rather of drug development is really crucial. I also love what you said about, you know, there is going to be other opportunities. There's this balance between realizing there will be other opportunities, but not waiting too long. And it's a little bit of an art not necessarily a science. And and the term that comes to mind is FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, which not a lot of people know was actually a term coined at HBS, at Harvard Business School, because there's this prevailing idea at HBS that there's so many opportunities, so many things to do, so many clubs to join that you're always trying to engage and do all of that together, right? I know it's a prevailing, pervasive problem throughout all society, but it's especially a problem at HBS. And I think some people think that, you know, I, I have to do all of these different things all at once right at HBS and taking a deep breath and, and saying, yes, like there is 
such a concept as waiting too long, but there will be other opportunities available. In 10 years, there's going to be amazing ideas and amazing ways to execute and amazing you know, companies to create. And taking that global view, I think, can be very, very helpful and reassuring in, in some way. But just shifting gears here a little bit, Alice, you're a healthcare entrepreneur, but you've also worked with some of the most prominent healthcare VCs around, and you are you know, one of the most healthcare prominent VCs around. And healthcare innovation and funding are obviously inextricably linked. They need each other to survive. And, and during times when you know, money is cheap and there's a lot of liquidity, like right after or right before COVID rather and early COVID, you know, a lot of companies got funded, whether it's good companies, bad companies, pre-revenue, post-revenue, sort of radical moonshot type ideas or more sort of reliable business models. But things have been pretty different, I would say, at least from my vantage point in 2022 and especially in 2023. There's obviously a lot of economic uncertainty. You know, VCs and entrepreneurs are a little bit scared. Money is less cheap with high interest rates. You know, IPOs have dried up and along with that, some level of liquidity, which has affected sort of the valuations in the later stages. Obviously, the SVB bank run, all of that stuff happened. And and VC funding and valuations, therefore, have taken a major hit. And some consider this to be sort of a proper correction after an overinflated sort of bull market. I know similar things happen in, in biotech as well. But there seems to be a maybe a bit of an overcorrection, as often happens when good companies are also underfunding and, and valuation pressure. So I'm curious what your perspective is on this sort of boom bust cycle and, and what's going to happen in the next you know, 12 to 18 months. From speaking with entrepreneurs and VCs, what is your impression of what the next couple of years has in hold on the private healthcare you know, funding side? Are there any signs of recovery or will things get worse before they get better? And, and what advice would you have you know, to VCs and entrepreneurs at this time? It, it, it is... It is definitely a challenging time to be a first-time entrepreneur. I think that VCs are risk-averse, um, and there is certainly a course correction. There's no question. So if you are a serial entrepreneur with a proven track record, and you have a compelling idea, and if it happens to include a large language model, fantastic, right? Uh However, for everyone else, um, it requires a bit more tenacity, a bit more grit. Um, there is really a need for a course correction, though, even on the types of businesses that get funded, um, in my opinion, because I spend a lot of time now with the marketplace itself um, that these companies are positioning to exit to. Um, and I feel like people aren't spending enough time thinking about that, um, if you are inside a provider right now, and so you have to think about who's your market. Are you selling to providers? Are you selling to pharma? Um, if you're selling to providers, you better have some way to have an economic impact, either cost savings or revenue generation for their business or, or their hospital system. Um, or it's very difficult to think about right now because of all the shifting tides in terms of what's happened with Medicare and Medicaid. And so... You have to think about the market and actually work backwards because I think what 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 VCs want to see is some degree of validation or traction. So even if you've gone and you've talked to a dozen providers and they say, absolutely, this is this is absolutely something that will be impactful, and I would pilot this. That's powerful, right? 
And you think about pharma, I think, is another area to really think a lot about. Pharma pipelines, pharma companies need innovation. They need a next generation of molecules and solutions. But the hard part is they don't need point solutions. They cannot incorporate a point solution. So if you have an AI company that looks at, 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 at uh, predicting you know, molecules and, and binding properties and other things, and that's all it does, they can't do anything with that. So you have to think about how do you solve a problem that then becomes marketable uh, once you've actually reduced it to practice. And I, I, I would hope that founders are think, being a bit more thoughtful about that right now. I think that's the key piece is because you can always find funding. I mean, there's funding. You can find it from angel groups. I mean, there's, there's ways you can get it from corporates. Um, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, we live in this wonderful era of incubation. You know, all these incubators and accelerators, none of those existed when I started my first company. There are ways to get started now. I worry less about getting started. I worry more about exit. And not just exit to make money, but to actually prove that what you are moved to do has an impact. Yeah, no, thank you, Alice. This is incredibly helpful, uh, you know, especially for those in our audience and us, really, because, you know, Alex and I are working at Sky Therapeutics, but especially for those in our audience who are either, you know, first time founders or thinking about starting a company, maybe they have an interesting idea. I've heard this from multiple experienced VCs. They've said and they've told us that companies, especially good companies, and I'll talk in a second about what good companies, as I understand, means are still getting funded, but uh, it's really certain pockets and certain business models and certain types of founders that are struggling a little bit more. You pointed out, you know, first time founders. Conceptually, I think a lot of VCs are also in the seed stage looking for maybe series A type of milestones, a little bit more, you know, revenue, a little bit more sort of product market fit before, you know, pounding the company with money. And this concept of focusing on your market is really intriguing. And it's something that, you know, we, I would have loved to hear, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, if you're selling to providers, you know, for example, most medical devices end up doing that. You need to actually, you know, focus on what the actual market is. There's been an issue in the digital therapeutic space where they thought that you could take a novel technology and use the existing sort of regulated prescription only insurance reimbursement pharma business model, but things just haven't worked out that way, at least so far. Lots of sort of pain points, a lot of lack of awareness. The existing stakeholders like insurance companies don't have the right incentives to reimburse these digital therapeutic products. There isn't a societal or a cultural pressure. And so I think what the first generation of DTX companies like Pear and Achille and Better, and they were pioneers. They've spent you know a ton of capital, labor, resources propping up the, the space, but they sort of thought that they could take this technology and then just like plug it into an existing business model. And it just doesn't work that way usually. And so you have to find intriguing or interesting ways to align the stakeholders and create that market if the market doesn't exist. It's easier said than done, right? Like Alex and I are thinking about this 24-7, at least in the US, on how to exactly do that. But this notion that, you know, who cares if you get FDA cleared? Like, do you have a market to sell into? That's the point, especially, you know, when markets correct and capital isn't, you know, dirt cheap like it was a couple of years ago. 
but this is very, very helpful for our audience. And I'm curious, do you have a sense from when you're speaking with you know other VCs? I know there's a, still a ton of dry powder. I know the public markets are doing relatively well, at least, you know, big tech and AI and things like that. And and maybe there's some inkling that the IPO market is starting to come back if you squint a little bit. And do you have a sense of what's going to happen, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months, or is it just too early to tell? Well, from what I can see and from conversations that I've had, my sense is that the investors are, are prioritizing the portfolio that they've already put sunk money into and wanting to make sure that that succeeds. So, and providing less. So those founders may get more funding, but they're getting less funding. So they're getting compressed, which is challenging. So you see a lot of you know, restructurings and reductions in force and, and things like that. For, for, for new founders, um, I think it's a time to think about um, proven business models um, so, which is why I go back to, to biotech and, and, and although in those cases, you probably do want to partner, um, with a really high quality, uh, company formation fund, um, if you're going to do that. Uh, I, I think what you were saying is so interesting because thinking about, okay, as clinicians, what do we think about when we think about product? We think about, is it safe and effective, Right. If that's what matters to us. Do no harm. We took an, an oath. Um, and yet, far more important is, is it going to get paid for? You know, are people going to buy it? And that wasn't part of our education. Now, you both are very lucky. I, I have HBS FOMO because I always wanted to go to HBS and then I was running my business and they wouldn't let me leave. I, I actually tried to leave and my team actually said they would quit if I didn't come back. So I stayed. Um, but uh, but I think it's very interesting that as much time and energy you put into the clinical studies, you actually put into the economic studies, right, to show the, the power of your value prop. I, I think the, the, ex, the expectation is this. You just have to demonstrate more now. You have to demonstrate uh, that there is interest in the marketplace. You have to demonstrate uh, that you have some data to support your claims, um, you have to just be a little bit further upstream. And I think, you know, there is obviously a bit of a hype cycle going on right now around AI, which is interesting to me because I've been interested in AI for the last 20 years. And there have been times when we've worked with AI and it's worked great. And there's times when it was just the wrong use case. Um, and now, of course, we have better tools and, and, you know, better processing capacity, et cetera. So there's more to be done. But I view AI as a utility. So I, I assume that there should be AI in everything you do. If you're not incorporating AI, you're doing something wrong. So it's interesting to me when a company tries to position itself as purely just an AI business as opposed to a business that's solving an unmet need in the marketplace. So I, I just think it's a moment to really roll up your sleeves. And anybody who's listening to this is probably someone who knows what hard work already is. So... It's just imagine if you think about the life cycle of a company and before you might be able to get the funding from a really good idea that was vetted by a couple of you know, reputable folks. Now you've got to take it a bit further up, upstream and really validate your assumptions a bit more. And if you do that, there's capital. There's definitely capital. Yeah, no, thank you, Alice. And you sort of mentioned some HPS FOMO and 
you know, there's two ways you can get a business education, either sort of getting an MBA or actually working in business. And the latter is probably a cheaper and more effective way to do it. And so I wouldn't feel too much FOMO for those in the audience whose path never crosses with an MBA. There's many, many other ways to get that sort of confidence, education, network, whatever you sort of desire, formal business education. But this has been a fantastic episode and really one of my favorites. Lots of very interesting insights. Alice, to sort of finish us off, you know, how can our audience learn more about you know, the amazing work that you do and follow your work? Well, one of the things that I have learned about myself, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now, is that in helping other people achieve their possibilities, I become clearer on my own. And so I actually love advising and guiding people as they start to think about new company formation, uh, their financing strategies, all the steps. I'm one of those people, I'm very comfortable with ambiguity. I love drawing boxes around things that don't have boxes. Uh, I can certainly help people prevent crashing into walls because <laughs> I've crashed into a lot of them. Um, you, you asked actually early on, uh, one of the things that I learned as a 25-year-old founder is I had this policy called don't step on the same rake twice, which, um, you know, if you hit the rake, <laughs> it hurts. So I tried very hard to always put policies in place that I, I never um, made that same mistake. But now um, the best way to stay in touch with me really is just to follow me on LinkedIn, um, send, you know, follow me or send a connect and reach out. I'm, I'm happy to chat. Uh, you know, there's just so much incredible work being done right now and that's needed. And so if I can help guide any of that, uh, I, please view me as a resource. Um, I think that there is, we have to get over probably, I would say another year of a bit of a course correction but then on the other side of that, um, there's going to be a lot of need. Um, but really just having your ear to the market, really having conversations with people and being clear that there's a path, not just to funding, um, but there's, that this is something that, that the marketplace, that people want, that patients want, providers want, whoever you're selling to. So um, these things are, are really, really key. But I do think it's so interesting because, uh, you know, I think about uh, – going off the beaten path and now looking back in the rear view mirror about it and realizing that there's that Robert Frost poem, you, you know, the road less traveled. Um, and I've taken the road uh, that was uh, less traveled, but that has actually made all of the difference. And so I would just recommend for people not to be afraid and uh, make the most of everything and do it. Be it. Yeah, no, thank you, Alice. And inspiring parting words. You know, you mentioned this notion of not making the same mistake twice. I would always sort of tell myself in residency, at least when I looked around and saw the best residents, they weren't individuals who never made mistakes. They were individuals who tried never to make the same mistake twice. And, and if you sort of do that consistently, the number of mistakes that you make go down exponentially. And, and, and usually like 80% of the errors occur because of like 10 mistakes and so are 10 types of mistakes or buckets of mistakes. And so if you can learn from that, then you radically decrease the number of mistakes you make. One other thing that's key to that, um, which I think is particularly difficult for this audience is that um, we're, we don't want to make mistakes. Um, in, in clinical medicine, if you make a mistake, um, it can be, there are significant impl implications, but in business, if you're not making mistakes, you're not taking enough risk. Yeah. And so that's just something that great, great parting words, but thank you so much, Alice, for joining us and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much to both of you. I wish you all the best more soon.
Wow, what a great episode, Alex, with Alice. I was looking forward to this quite a while and really lived up to my expectations. There's so much to talk about, but what I really, really enjoyed you know, about speaking with Alice about is just how brave she was to start a company while she was still in medical school. And she mentioned specifically while she was on her surgery rotation, which just adds a second layer of impressiveness to that already impressive sentiment. She may be, you know, soft-spoken and, and very eloquent, but the fire that it takes to do something that brave, I think, is immeasurable. You know, speaking from personal experience, before going to business school, I didn't really know the ABCs of the business world. And so what I wanted to do is really cram in two years of education, but also two years of work experience in those two years of business school. And so I would always tell myself that I wanted to get four years of worth of experience out of those two years. And that's what I did. At least that's what I think I did. You know, I took as many classes as I could and I did, you know, internships with consulting companies. I I worked part-time with different VCs. I volunteered to help MGH doctors, you know, think about how to get their ideas off the ground. And all that experience to me felt very invaluable because it gave me A, the education slash knowledge, B, the skills, C, the network, and D, the confidence that I felt I needed to be able to jump into entrepreneurship. And even then, psychologically, it's not easy because you don't know exactly what you're getting into. And there's a lot of volatility that's traditionally associated with being an entrepreneur. So for me, having a co-founder helped a ton and, and having a support system that believed in me, you know, helped as well. And so that's the background environment that I needed to feel comfortable jumping into entrepreneurship. But everyone's different, right? And Alice and my experience showcases that. It just goes to show that the right time and the way to start a business can vary depending on who you are, where you are in your career, your risk tolerance, the quality of the idea you have, and many more factors, both personal and business related. While certain things will directionally help you succeed in entrepreneurship, for example, having previous valuable experiences on balance definitely helps, not just in running the business, but also in fundraising, especially during a tough fundraising climate like this. And also like putting, you know, your full-time effort into the business will also help immensely. Despite all of those things that, you know, directionally either help or hurt, I still believe there is no perfect time and way to become an entrepreneur. You know, hyper-successful entrepreneurs range from college dropouts all the way to, you know, doctors with little to no business experience or background who have amazing idea and work hard and learn on the job, all the way to middle-aged you know, MBAs, and then all the way to more experienced, later career, first-time entrepreneurs. That's the beauty of entrepreneurship. And I think Alice's story and and then now me sharing my story illustrates that spectrum and that continuum. But that's the takeaway from my side. Over to you, Alex, for your takeaway. Chad, those are great takeaways. have one quick takeaway from the conversation with Alice. It specifically relates to the part of the episode where she shared that she had a very different vision of the level vision or visualization or expectations for the level of efficiency of healthcare delivery before she started medical school. And she was surprised to see that the delivery of healthcare was very inefficient uh, during her medical school rounds. And I think that's a very interesting takeaway. And it goes to this point that we've discussed before that healthcare lags behind many industries for justified reasons like risk averseness, but also for unjustified reasons. And I think 
if we take the uh, adoption of machine learning in healthcare as an example, healthcare is solidly five to seven years behind the tech industry in terms of its level of adoption. And I think this bleeds into a, another interesting idea that um, if the assumption that healthcare lags behind other industries is true, that means that other industries have solved conceptually similar problems to the problems that healthcare faces today. And so it's interesting to think that some of the problems that we have in healthcare today have twins that have been solved in other industries and whether we can learn uh, from the experience of other industries. And another interesting thought there is whether healthcare has been able to solve certain conceptual problems more efficiently than other industries and whether other industries can learn from healthcare. So really my takeaway is about this cross-industry learning between healthcare and other industries. But that concludes my thoughts on the conversation. And uh, for the audience out there, uh, remember to follow us on social media on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at BOTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. We volunteer our time and money to make this content freely available. So if you enjoy our content and find it helpful, you can support us by buying us a coffee at https semicolon uh, two slashes www.buymeacoffee.com slash p-o-t-b-p podcast thank you and see you next time